we are talking about taking human lives in order to protect your country. But what are the lines? What does democracy allow itself to do in order to protect its citizens? Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and joining me in the studio is Ronan Bergman, the Senior Correspondent for Military and Intelligence Affairs for Israel's daily newspaper, Yadiot Achlanot, and a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. Ronan is also the author of the recently released book, Rise and Kill First, a portion of which we excerpted in Foreign Policy. Joining Ronan and me on Skype is Foreign Policy's deputy editor based in London, Sasha Palikosaransky. In your book, Ronan, you offer the first authoritative history of the special operations of Mossad, the Shin Bet, and the IDF's targeted assassinations, and you dive into the nitty-gritty of their operations, like the fact, the most important fact, that since since the Second World War, the Jewish state has assassinated more people than any other country in the Western world, some 2,300 of, quote, targeted killing operations, unquote. And one of the things you discuss in the excerpt this week in Foreign Policy is you say, quote, the targeted killings were clearly safe saving lives, but there was a disturbing trend in the data, too. The number of attempted attacks was increasing. Rather than wearing down Hamas and other terrorist groups, the assassinations were spawning more and more attackers. There's a lot of details in the book about specific operations, but I wanted to start with sort of a meta question. Um, Are targeted killings effective? Were they effective for Israel? And and how does one measure effectiveness? I'll make that a second part of the question. So, first of all, uh, hello, and thank you, and thank to Sasha and Foreign Policy for inviting me. It's an honor. When we speak about assassinations or targeted killings, that in Hebrew sound means the same. I know that there is, for some legal reasons, the American intelligence agencies use targeted killings and not assassinations, but we are talking about the attempt to kill someone's specific in order to achieve some sort of a goal, protecting your citizen, change history, um, defending the country from some sort of a, of a danger or a threat. Um, when you deal with this controversial measure, controversial measure, I think that you, there are two questions to address. One, is it legally and morally justified? And the other one, is it effective? And so the answer to that question, after uh, eight years of research, 1,000 interviews, um, and after covering the 70 years of existence of Israel, and even before the pre-state history, I would say that the answer is yes under certain conditions. It is effective, or the, the, the lesson the, the history teaches us, it was effective when it was part of an overall policy, when it was done in a systematic move and not just in order to satisfy the pressure from the public and uh, in order to show that we are doing, or Israeli, Israeli government is doing something, when the targets were clearly identified and they were not political targets, but operatives, terrorists, proliferators. And so in times, and I can identify at least three examples, when targeted assassination, targeted killings were effective and actually changed history for the benefit of, of Israel. Can you talk about, if not all three of those examples, perhaps one that exemplifies that? The huge campaign of suicide terrorism that was launched by Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad in what was later termed the Second Intifada, which started in late 2000 and ended uh, somewhere during 2004. They were horrific terrorist attacks, but the, the ones who actually 
paralyzed Israel to the extent that no money was coming in, no investors, there were no civilian lives because people were just afraid to go out to the streets. I was living in Israel at that time. I remember that very vividly. The attempt to stop what was considered to be unstoppable, the poor man's smart bomb, suicide terrorism, was successful only thanks to the fact that Ariel Sharon, as Israeli prime minister, decided to uh, take, to adopt the Shin Bet, the Israeli Domestic Secret Service uh, recommendation, and go to a full extent targeted killing campaign. You, you talk in the book at that moment in 2001 about a key legal decision that was taken by the military advocate general that transformed Israel's approach to targeted killing. What happened? What did that memo say? And how did it change the security services policy and the state's approach to admitting or denying assassinations? So until that point, which you very clearly identified in history, Sasha, until that point, Israel employed tactics of targeted killings throughout many, many years and many uh, operations and targets, but it never took responsibility for doing that. So when Israel was asked, or Israeli official, they answered with a wink and a nod or just flat denial, but Israel never took responsibility. Once Israel started to do that in territories under its control, or at least partly under its control in Judea and Samaria and Gaza, and doing it three to four times a day sometime, it was just useless to try and, and, and deny. Therefore, the IDF legal division had to come with some sort of a, of a solution that could defend the people who, who, who are doing that in Israeli courts and in international forums that they might be prosecuted. And they changed the, the, the rules of conduct and the law of wars. They said that I'm, I'm doing it's a very complicated um, doctrine, but I'll do it as, as simple as possible. They basically said that a terrorist or illegal combatant, according to their perception, can be killed not just when being in the line of battle, like a soldier wearing a uniform, but can be also targeted killed when he goes home to, to sleep, for example. So he does not stop to be a target, a legitimate target, at all time, as long as he is part of a terrorist organization. That changed the policy from uh, police work in the occupied territories to some sort of a, a, a war zone short of all-out war that basically enabled the IDF, the Shin Bet, Special Forces, the Air Force to take out individuals and later defend these actions in court. And the perception was later adopted by the Israeli court, no less important, by the American legal counsels uh, to the intelligence services and the principles of that doctrine behind the American policy of targeted killing today. One of the things that you talk about in the excerpt we publish is about them coming up with the name of what to call this, which is intertwined with the legal framework. And you talk about what they settled on or the Hebrew term, which translates into English as targeted preventative acts. And of course, in the U.S., we have targeted killings. And there was a debate and still is a debate among journalists about whether in articles the term targeted killings should be used or whether it should be called assassinations or killings, whether by adopting the nomenclature of the state, we accept their argument or their logic. What do you think of that debate? 
And where I, do you fall on it? <laughs> yeah, well, in Hebrew, all that, the Israelis understand that this is just euphemism. They were trying to find a word, a wording that would not include murder or killing. At the end, they used sikul memukad, which means something like focus prevention or targeted act, but doesn't have the specific words that sound problematic. At the end of like the day, like killing people, like killing people. At the end of the day, this whole maneuver of calling it targeted killing and not assassination in order to enable the CIA to do what it is not legal to do, basically killing people, which you know the CIA after the Church Committee and everything that happened in the mid seventies was just forbidden of executing. You know, I understand what they are doing, but I think that everybody understands that we are talking about taking human lives in order to protect your country, and then. And this is the important question, not how you call it. But what are the lines? What does democracy allow itself to do in order to protect its citizens while knowing that doing that tortures, targeted killing, violating privacy in, while hacking into databases, that's violate other values of democracy. That's the main debate problem. Going back to that legal memo, what you just said makes me think the IDF always prides itself on being an ethical army and, and mentions that. And I wonder from reading your book, is it still an ethical And did Israeli leaders in the security sector stick to the rules established in that legal memo, or did they overstep the bounds? And is that always an inherent problem with defense establishments and intelligence services that if a legal decision gives them so much slack that they'll always take a little bit more. What happened in this case? I think that the, many of Israeli commanders uh, and senior officials are correct when they are saying that the Israeli military and defense establishment are more moral, more ethical, and more strict than many of the other armies and, and countries in the world. Now, the question remains, is that enough? being more than or better than them, is that enough to protect the values of democracy? And in many cases, not. And the, the book does uh, describe many of these incidents when the uh, wish, when the desire to protect people from being killed uh, was just too much or too uh, superior to any other consideration when it was seen that killing or endangering the lives of innocent people in other places could be worth it when it was clear that they, you are saving your own. Now, I don't, I really don't, I'm not jealous of the dilemma, the dilemmas that these people had to go through, the commanders, the, the prime ministers, and others. While saying that, I do see in the book many stories, one of them was just published in the New York Times as extras. When on one hand, you had someone so obsessive in killing Yasser Arafat, Defense Minister Errol Sharon, that he spared no means and had no reservation of ordering the endangerment of people, innocent people around Yasser Arafat. But at the same time, through numerous operations in different places on earth, trying to kill the, the one they call the head of the fish, Yasser Arafat, there were brave officers who said, we are not going to go for that. This is direct violation of the ethics of war. Now, they didn't have a problem with the legitimacy of killing Arafat himself. That's, that was not the issue. They said, if we can kill him and just him, that's fine with us. But we are not going to endanger the civilians. And they stood up 
and they refused to do that, actually declaring mutiny against the Ministry of Defense or either by disrupting the operation, feeding it with disinformation, or just saying we are not going to do that. So at the end of the day, in many cases, yes, innocent lives were taken. And in other cases, ethics, war ethics were, were preserved. What was amazing for me about that excerpt in the New York Times about Ariel Sharon's sort of obsessive Moby Dick-like desire to kill Arafat was that it didn't work. And it was a combination of the concerns about civilian casualties. And, and then Arafat some, luck. And Arafat luck and, and some diverting. But what does that tell us about one of the most sophisticated and advanced militaries and intelligence services in the world um, that they, I mean, not that it was a failure, but it's just sort of amazing, like fo- so much focus on one person, but they couldn't kill him. Um. Well, it, it, it means that first he was very lucky. You know, yes. Uzi Dayan, later to be the, the nephew of Moshe Dayan and later to be the uh, deputy chief of staff and national security advisor, he said, listen, Arafat was saved and he was heading that uh, uh, saltfish force in Beirut that was after him. He was saved thanks to two things. First, his unbelievable luck and instincts to, you know, to understand that if a bomb is falling on a building that he's, uh, he's just exit, then something is wrong. And second, it was me, Uzi Dayan, who saved his life because I refused to bomb populated yes. buildings. Um, look, Israeli intelligence was not able to locate Yasser Arafat. Because he was cautious and lucky, but they were able to, as you as you know from the book, he was able to lock. They were able to to lock in on many, many, many others who didn't believe that Israel could get them. So, towards the end of the book, Ronan, you're talking about Israel's response to the Second Intifada and suicide bombings, and as the number of targeted killings increases, there's a mutiny in one of the elite units of the intelligence division of the military. And you detail the story of a dissenter in that unit who refused to authorize a strike on a building where civilians were present. And some higher ups in the military wanted him to be tried for treason after that. How did the military top brass get to that point? And what would you say the impact of all of these killings has been on Israeli society and its military doctrine in general? When you're in war, the muse are silence. So um, I think that Israel felt as if they are in a constant war that they are not able to win for years. The chief of the Shin Bet at that time, Avi Dichter, told me we did not supply the citizens of Israel with the shield that they deserve. People were killed, so uh, many other considerations were just put aside. And that brave soldier, brave officer in the signal intelligence unit of the IDF, he declared mutiny, said, I'm not going to get to give the intelligence to the F-16 that is going to bomb a building because the orders were to to bomb a building with someone, not someone specific, just a someone in order to send a message to the Palestinian Authority that some suicide, uh, so the suicide terrorist attack just a few hours before is not going to go by. Um, and this was a, a clear violation of the protocol of targeted killing of the IDF, and he stood. And the fact that on one hand, the operation was called off, on the other, people at the uh, chief of staff said he, was, he should be court-martialed, even put to the firing squad, 
But at the end of the day, they dismissed him from the army and they, they did not put him on trial because they understood that if put on trial, who is going to be trial at the end is them for giving the illegal order. And going to the second question, Sasha, the a country where a lot of people had to deal with these kind of operations. And as technology advanced, we're not just talking about someone with a knife or a sniper rifle or with a gun. James Bond is in the movies. The real thing has a lot of people, to, to hundreds of people being involved. And that, of course, has an effect. Only in Israel, you have this extraordinary form of very young people going with their boss, the chief of military intelligence, or Mossad, or Shin Bet, to see the prime minister in his house, because it's so secret, to give to convince him to authorize a targeted killing operation. Only the, the prime minister can give the okay. Now, they are going to him to present it with the data, because the young people, most of them under 30, some of them under 25, they are the intelligence officers, the, office, the, the operatives, the pilot, they, they are the ones who actually know. The boss is, of course, with them, but they present it. Some of these people, throughout time, crossed that room and became the prime minister or the minister of defense. And look, Benjamin Netanyahu, Ehud Barak, Moshe Yelon, um, and many others took part in these deep cover beyond enemy lines, uh, including sabotage and targeted killing operations. And you come to think, what does it do to their mindset to their ability to transform from the use of force to statemanship, to political discourse, to compromise. Um, and I'm not sure that the, that that past experience is just leading to positive outcomes. I want to turn to more a question. I mean, when I was reading uh, part of the book, one of the things, and perhaps this betrays my own interests in sort of far-out schemes, um, you detail a couple of rather far-fetched assassination attempts. One, a brainwashing of a Manchurian candidate, and the other of a dog. I believe it's a dog with explosives, and it wanders off and doesn't. So, I mean, describe the... like. Were those the most outlandish things you came across? No, there was there was one I think that that ended up uh, because of the um, very strict editing of Random House that uh, you had to keep things out or downgraded them to the end notes. So there was one story about one of the perpetrators of the Munich attack, the one that many of the, athletes, the Israeli athletes were killed. So he stayed alive and Israel couldn't get to him for a very long time. And only in the mid 80s did they locate him in France. And he was also, he had cancer. Now there was a debate in Mossad whether to let him die from cancer or poison him because they are not going to shoot him in France and make it um, a much faster death. And they decided that they are not going to take any any kind of consideration. We can't say they are going to poison him. They poisoned him. And at, at least according to the, the urban legend in Mossad, I, I didn't see the documents, uh, he recovered, not just from the poison, from the, but from the cancer. He lived until 2001. <laughs> So, uh, so this is another, just another story of uh, one of these botched uh, where, you know, sometimes Mossad looks uh, 
less like James Bond and more like Inspector Clouseau. Well, it reminds me as well as of the attempts of Operation Mongoose and some of the CIA's attempts to kill Fidel Castro with exploding seashells and poison. It's almost when you get too clever by half, you, you tend to start looking ridiculous. Yeah, but at the end of the day, we are talking about operationally, tactically, intelligence-wise, we are talking about a story of success. Tim Weiner uh, wrote an exceptional book called Legacy of Ashes about the CIA. This is not Rise and Kill First. This is not the book I wrote. This is a story about a long, very long series of successes of the Israeli intelligence community that sooner or later provide Israeli leaders with any solution they were seeking. This is arguably the best intelligence community in the world. But this is also the, uh, where the seeds of a problem lies. One last question. Why did they give you access? As someone who's, who's Everybody trying to research wants to know. <laughs> similar issues on my own, it's remarkable how much you were able to get through interviews and documents. Uh, I have no doubt that you worked very hard to do that, but some of it depended on these people opening up to you. What was their incentive to talk? I smiled. Um, which is, by the way, part of the answer, the true answer. But uh, the full answer is that, first, look, these people, intelligence officers and politicians, uh, are by far the masters of manipulation and disinformation. So whatever they said, you, you need to, to take with some grain of salt. And probably they, some of them tried to manipulate me, manipulate me as well. I try to handle that with having so many interviews and having as many documents as possible to corroborate and then trying to screen aside all these attempts to fill me with, with uh, disinformation. I think, but I think that the, the, the general, each one has a, has a story, and sometimes the stories of how did I get these files, the, the, the original documents, or how do I get that person to speak are just a little less interesting than the story itself. But I think that overall there's something very Israeli. It's very, hard, very easy to, to explain to Israelis, harder to non-Israelis, but I'll try. These people are not ashamed of what they did. They are proud of that. They are seen in Israel by themselves, but also by society, as the guards of, on the wall, as, borrowing from the narration to Star Trek, the final frontier for the defense of Israel. People who saved lives. They are not murderers by, by their vision. They, are, they, they took extreme measures to do what, it's needed, what is needed to prevent Second Holocaust. And... After so many years in the in the shadow, they want to have some acknowledgement of what they did, and they thought that I'm writing the unofficial history, the unauthorized, but yet the history of Israeli intelligence, and they wanted to make sure that their footprint is set upright in that book. And it's getting a lot of very positive attention in the United States. What has been the reaction in Israel, both from public, but also from the people who worked inside these agencies? The book has not yet been published in Hebrew. I'm working on the Hebrew 
uh, and I'm very much embarrassed vis-a-vis the Hebrew publisher for just didn't But I'm make sure it. people are already looking yeah. at the English Be- edition. People, people are looking, and I think that people are interested. And, of course, there are some attacks. I've already received uh, very strong criticism from Israel Today, Israel Ayom, the Sheldon, paper, Sheldon Ellison free paper. Uh, naturally, I didn't expect anything else. Um, but I think, I think you, generally speaking, people are extremely, extremely interested in reading these stories, in understanding, because they acknowledge the fact that this is not just, you know, tiny details that are reserved for a small circle of people, that the Israeli intelligence community throughout the last 70 years have secretly but profoundly affected, had a strong effect and impact on Israeli history, the history of the region and sometimes the history of the world. And therefore, it is so interesting and so um, so valuable. So I want to end on a a topic that you started to develop on where you said that this this has been incredibly effective, that the intelligence has been incredibly effective. But you also said it laid the seeds or planted the seeds for something else. Yes. What is that? That these successes, these unbelievable sometimes and uh, thrilling successes of the Israeli intelligence community with finding solutions to the challenges, severe challenges that the politicians pose to them, that convinced the politicians that at the tip of their fingers, they have some capability to order a like a far beyond enemy line operation to destroy a facility, to plant a virus in a computer or to kill someone. And in that way, not just save Israel from some specific risk or proliferate or terrorist, but also hold history by its tail. And I think that, that, that this is an illusion. I think that there's a limit to the use of force. And I think that many of Israeli leaders, right or left, I'm not, it's not political, uh, there's no differentiation here, thought that while having such a strong intelligence community, they do not need to turn to statementship, to political discourse, and to compromise. Therefore, the story of the book is also a story of some, I would say, magnificent tactical successes, but also of a disastrous uh, strategic failure. I think that's a good way of talking about the effectiveness. Ronan, thank you so much for joining us. You can read an excerpt from Ronan's book in Foreign Policy, and you can also pick up a copy of Rise and Kill First. Sasha, thank you for joining us for London, and Ronan, thank you so much, and good luck with the book. Thanks so much. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Shelby Bostet. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.